you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the first chapter. I'm going to continue speaking this morning along the line of the articles of faith that we began several weeks ago. We come to the third article of faith of Bethlehem Church. And of course, you know, we're using the the founding document from Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which established Bethlehem. And if you'll pray for me this morning, I hope to look at this from somewhat of a different angle, a practical angle. It's a fact that we, as God's people, as anybody as a people, learn through storytelling, through the telling of stories. That's one of the most impactful methods to learn. I don't know, that's maybe one of the reasons I never did very well in math. Because you, you just can't tell many stories about math, can you? But I did well in English, you know, because I, I love the stories that I heard. So this morning, as we consider Article 3, I will tell you that it is probably the most controversial article of faith. And it is the one that stands out the most and would be distinct from many other articles of faith. Now, let me say this. If you don't know what an article of faith is, it is just a statement of principles that a church is founded upon. So to be a part of that church, it's, it's very important to believe what the foundational principles are. And it's interesting to me that these foundational principles have not changed since 1847 for Zion and since 1901 for Bethlehem. And it was very in vogue in the late 1700s, even 1600s, especially when the King James Bible became the modern translation of the Word of God. It was very in vogue for different religious groups to state their articles of faith. The main reason was because of persecution. There was a lot of misunderstanding about what different groups believed. So one of the main reasons was because they were being persecuted. The Protestants over in England, Europe, different areas, and then the Baptists. Remember, Baptists are not Protestants. And when you see in the paper that, you know, the Protestant population is this and the other type of population is that, Baptists are not Protestants. You don't fall under protesting. You come under professing. You've never been a Protestant. Don't fall into that trick. So as we look at Article 3, I want you to listen to the language, very specific language. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to show you in the Word of God where it comes from. Because you would, you would literally have to rip out the pages of the Word of God to deny that this is in the Word of God. Okay, so here we go. Article 3. We believe in the doctrine of election, predestination, and the final perseverance of the saints through grace, which is the final preservation of the saints, and that God chose His people in Christ before the world began. Consider the doctrinal terminology here very briefly, and we're going to move to the practical side of it. It's very simple to find where our forefathers pulled this from, and took this out of the Word of God and stated it. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 is one of those places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul begins that list of spiritual blessings. And at the top of that list, the very first thing that he says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's what we know as an old Baptist honey hole. Those few verses have been preached by old Baptists, by primitive Baptists, years upon end. When I was growing up, every Sunday, that's about all you heard, was a sermon on election and how you know, we were right and everybody else was wrong. That is such a terrible attitude. So understand 
This is not about being right or wrong. This is about seeing what God says about His own character and His own heart. And God's heart to your heart says that the first blessing that God gave you was He chose you in Christ before the world was formed. Mark the 13th chapter and the 20th verse, Jesus' own mouth speaks of the elect whom He, God, hath chosen. You want to know who the elect are? It's those that God has chosen. You want to know who the chosen are? It's those that God elected. Elect just means to select. If you're a voting age, you have gone and voted. You have selected a candidate, you see. Well, God selected a candidate for salvation before the world was formed. Some people say, well, God cast a vote for you in this election, and Satan cast a vote against you, and you cast the tying vote. (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. You weren't there before the foundation of the world, and neither was I. So the first blessing that he lists is you are blessed because God has chosen you. Now, we don't give adoptive parents a hard time, do we? How many times have you ever got disgruntled or upset an adoptive parent who went to an orphanage and picked out one child out of a hundred? Or you might even think of some among us that some of you have picked one child out of thousands. And nobody ever came up to you and said, well, shame on you. Shame on you for choosing that one child. Nobody ever did that. They say, praise God you did that. Praise God you chose, you adopted. And yet we don't give the Father in heaven that kind of grace. We say it's not fair because He chose a multitude, but he didn't choose others. What about in marriage? You know, nobody was, was mad at me because I didn't choose all the other girls in the world to marry. I chose Sister Tracy. She chose me. Praise God. Nobody got mad at me over that. They weren't lined up saying, oh, well, he didn't choose me. Not by any means were they lined up. You know, we give men and women, we afford them grace and mercy. I can't believe you left all those people out that you didn't choose to marry. We don't do that with men and women. We say, praise God, you made the choice. But we don't give God the grace that we should afford Him often in His choice of a bride, of a spouse, and His choice of a people. Now, don't ever forget this. As old Baptists, as primitive Baptists, we're the only people in the world that teach and preach that I know of, aside from a few sovereign grace Baptists, that teach and preach that God has a number of people that are as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea. Everybody else is very selective with what they preach and teach, that you can't go to heaven unless this, unless that, unless the other. But we preach and teach what God preached and taught to Abraham, where He told Abraham to look at the stars, and if you can number the stars, then you've got the number of the children of God. You can't number the stars, and you can't number the sands of the sea, right? We're the only people, I think, that that I hear, that I know of that preaches. And I listen to a lot of preaching. That doesn't make us special. It doesn't make us stand out because of who we are. It tells you that God has a people that you can't number. There's so many people. It's not based upon hearing the gospel. It's not based upon a baptism. It's not based upon a profession. It's based upon the mercy and grace of God. Let's move to one other doctrinal term, and then we'll look at two practical examples that I believe prove without question what I'm preaching to you. It says we believe in predestination. I just read to you where it says, having predestinated us into the adoption of children. There's only two or three places in the Word of God that this word is even mentioned. I think it's interesting that in the book of Ephesians that it's mentioned twice. It's the only doctrinal salvation term in Ephesians 1 that is mentioned twice. You know why I think that's the case? It's because the Holy Spirit saw in advance that this would be a really kicked around 
degraded truth one day. And it is. If anybody even knows about it. So few people know about it. Now I've told you before, three out of four churchgoers in 1776 historically believed in predestination. And you might find one person out of 100 or 500 on the street today to understand what it means. Or even know the concept of the word. But it is God's heart to you, child of God. It is His heart. It just means that He has made sure that your destination is going to be heaven. Because He's chosen you. Predestination. It's the Greek word pro orizo, which means to set out beforehand, to set the boundary beforehand. And God has set your boundary. You're going to be with Him in heaven because He has set your destination. There will be no delay in your arriving in heaven. You may think He tarries. You may think it's a long and sad life. You may think tragedy after tragedy, trouble after trouble, trial after trial. But I'm telling you, the Lord is coming and He's going to be on time and we'll all be together with Him. That is predestination. Now, let's talk about the practical side. I think you'll see from the two examples, if you want to be turning to Acts the 7th chapter and the 57th verse, I think you'll see from the two examples in the Word of God, it's very clear why God has to do the choosing. Most of the religious world tells you, you have to do the choosing. You have to make the choice. You have to cast the vote. But the Word of God teaches a doctrine, a truth, called depravity. And depravity just means that all of mankind is corrupt in sin because of what Adam did. You know, there's not a little good in everyone outside of God doing that good. You see? Even down to the little babies. I know y'all think that Link here, my grandson, can do no wrong. But sometimes he'll be, the same thing, I'm not just picking on Link. My kids did the same thing. They'll be screaming bloody murder. I'm not talking about now at 16 and 14 and 20-something. I'm not talking about now. Although they might from time to time. But when they were babies, just little bitty babies, they would scream. You'd think somebody's killing them in there. Somebody has slipped in the window and is killing them. And you go in there and they're just screaming their head off. And you pick them up and the next thing, you know, wah, wah, and they're quiet. They had us pretty well trained. You know, to pick them up and they're okay. You see, that's a deception. That's a built-in deception that comes from their forefather, not just Tim, Brother Tim, but Adam. You see, we come here prepackaged in sin because of what Adam, our forefather, did. Now, that's a doctrine that's taught throughout the Word of God from Genesis, the first chapter, in the Psalms, all the way down to the book of Revelation. It's taught that there is no goodness in man God even looked down through time just to make sure, is there anybody that's going to come to me, accept me, pray to me, be baptized for me, persevere for me? And he saw no one that would come to him. Now in Acts, the seventh chapter and the 57th verse, we find the first example that we're going to look at. There's so many that we could look at of one of those no ones that would not come to Jesus. Because he was dead in sins. And by the way, this guy was a very religious man. I didn't say he was spiritual. He was very religious. And in Acts 7 and 57, we get introduced to this man. We are jumping into the very end of a terrible scene where Stephen, the deacon of that first church, was, is murdered. He's martyred. He's put to death because of what he preached. And let me tell you, he preached the sovereignty of God. It says, then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Stephen, him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is a totally illegal murder that's taking place here, all in the name of their zeal for who they believed to be God. And they had no idea who God really was because God had just been here, Jesus Christ, and he's resurrected. 
And Stephen is preaching that, and they stone him. And watch this in verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen. Calling up, he was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said on the cross, does it not? And when he had this, said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen died. Now verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now I want you to ask as we look at these practical examples of the choosing of God. What quality or character quality of Saul was, was appealing to the Lord Jesus Christ for him to choose him? What goodness about Saul in relation to spirituality? Because he's very religious. He's one of the Pharisees. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisee. The most educated of the religious elite of that day. And he's consenting to the death of this good man. The word consenting right there, it's more than just a legal term for the death penalty to take place. They had to have two or three witnesses. This person blasphemed. This person did this terrible death penalty worthy crime. But that's what Saul is doing. Who Eventually Saul becomes known as Paul. That's what Saul is doing. He is the witness. And consenting to his death as a witness is more than just a legal term. If you look at the definition, it means that he thought well of this. He was gratified and had pleasure in this. He took great pleasure in the death of Stephen, the Christian martyr. Here is this man standing by as they stoned this man to death. Blood coming out of his head, his body. Because stoning is a terrible way to die. You pick up stones and hit somebody until they don't move. Until they're dead. And he's standing by there. I could just picture him with a smirk on his face. We got this one. We got him. He is having great pleasure in the death of Stephen. And not only that, look, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And while the church is spreading out because of persecution, look for verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. The word havoc means to insult or to maltreat. Have you ever been insulted? It just kind of flies all over you when somebody insults you. I, I pray that you never have been. And Saul is out there insulting and maltreating the church of God. God's precious bride. Listen, I don't want anybody maltreating my bride or insulting my bride. I'm not going to have it. That's my bride. She's special to me. If anybody's going to insult her, it's going to be me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That was a joke. Y'all wake up. Nobody insults my bride. Nobody can do anything to her without me taking offense with it. You understand that? Because she's my bride. And she feels the same way about me as her husband. You understand? This is Christ's bride. This is His church. This is His manifest presence on the earth after He ascended back to heaven. And Saul is insulting his bride. Making havoc of the church. Entering into every house. You know, one of the legal constitutional rights that we have from English common law where every man's home is his castle. You know, you have the right to privacy. An officer of the law can't just show up and say, I'm coming into your home. It's not allowed. One of the reasons that became 
part of the Constitution is it came from some common law in England, but also because the English soldiers in the days of the revolution before the Revolutionary War, they would just enter into people's houses and just take it over and just live there and eat their stuff and even do terrible things from time to time to the families that they went into the houses of. So every man's home is his castle. Not in this case right here. There was no right of privacy here because Saul was entering into every house and he was hailing men and women. That means the word hailing right there means he dragged them out. When he found a Christian, he dragged them out. Men and women, not just men. You think, well, he'd spare, you know, maybe women, but he's dragging women out too. I'm surprised he didn't drag any children out. But mothers and fathers taken away from their children. Now, what part of this is attracted to God to choose Saul? What part of it? Nothing. This guy's an enemy of Christ. He was committing them to prison. And he was also testifying to their execution when it came time for their trial. Just like he did with Stephen. He's a bad man. He's not somebody that you would go looking for and say, hey, I want this guy to work for me. It says, therefore they went, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. See, Paul is making havoc of the church. You skip on over to Acts the ninth chapter, and, and here it says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. That threatenings and slaughter just means malice and murder. This guy is so zealous for what he thinks is God that he's breathing out malice and murder, threatenings and slaughter against the people of God. Now, what part of that is attractive to God to choose Saul to be one of his children? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. You see this? Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest in Jerusalem, and he desired of him letters. That's arrest warrants is what that is. He, he desired arrest warrants to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So ask yourself the question, what is attractive about Paul to God? Is there anything in his maneuvers and his strategy and his testimony and his getting arrest warrants to arrest God's people? Is there anything about Paul that is attractive at all about Saul? But let me tell you something. Saul had an appointment with predestination. Saul had an appointment with the choosing of God. There's so many examples like this that we can look in the Scripture and see somebody who had no quality whatsoever of godliness, no quality of Christ-likeness, from King Saul in the Old Testament, another Saul, to Lot in the Old Testament, I mean, just all down th to Rahab the harlot. I mean, just the, the Word of God is, re is repeat with people who have no quality for spiritual things. And one of the greatest of those is this murderer. He's a murderer. He's killing people illegally and testifying to their death. But Saul had an appointment. You know why? It wasn't because of anything good about Saul, was it? This is one of the people that God looked down through time and saw what Saul would do. And he thought, this guy will never come to me. I'm going to have to go to him. When you look at the practical side of this, you know, growing up as a child, I heard a lot of doctrinal preaching about election and predestination. 
And you know, I felt in my mind and often got in arguments with people, you know, this is right and all that other stuff is wrong. You know, and I never once argued anybody into seeing the truth. <laughs> never once. Made a few enemies from time to time trying to argue the doctrinal point of that. But when you see the practical side of this and you see yourself as an unworthy, broken vessel that God had to come to to do something good within you, then you get it. I've gotten a long ways with people showing the practical side of it. And there's no better example than Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He's got an appointment with the choosing power of God. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, verse 3. And suddenly, you know, Paul, can you picture that? If it wasn't so sad about the number of people that he'd been killing, the Christians he'd been killing, it'd almost be humorous, wouldn't it? Because he's going along with these arrest warrants, these death warrants in his hand, and he's going, you know, I can just see him gritting his teeth. And, you know, my grandmother, McCool, we'd be out there working on the farm, and, you know, dad was always lickety split, you know, let's get after it. And so I learned at a very young age to, you know, to walk fast, you know, to get, get after it. Because if he saw you lingering or languishing, he'd be like, come on, son, I need you to hold this, to hand me this, to do this. So we learned very early on, you know, to get after it and get moving. <laughs> and my grandmother cool would often look out there and see me, you know, walk, I'm, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, whatever years old. And she'd see me, she'd say, what's your hurry? <laughs> you know, what's your hurry? And she knew we were out there working. She knew what was going on. She'd seen her son my dad do that for years and years. And I can just picture Saul, you know, what's his hurry? He's going to kill Christians. He wasn't going to work on the farm like I was and help his dad. He is in a hurry. He is determined to go and arrest and put to an end all of this nonsense that relates to the Christianity, to Christian church. He was going for an appointment to arrest people, but he didn't know that as a chosen child of God that he had an appointment with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he walks along in his mad fervor to go and put to death those that he hates because they're followers of Christ, as he journeyed near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. And he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. You notice God called him by name. You hear that? Don't you ever forget that child of God, that as a chosen, born-again child of God, the Lord knows your name. He knows Tim. He knows fill in the blank of your name. He knows who you are. And here he comes to Saul in his mad fervor to destroy Christianity, and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He doesn't say, I'm Jesus, and I'm the one you've been persecuting. He says, Saul, Saul, as he's laying on the ground, is there any place for Saul to go? Is there any place for him to turn? He is naked and open before the Lord in his spiritual deadness. And the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus, out of his own mouth, testifies to us, there was nothing about Saul that was good or, or attractive to the Lord. And look at Saul. I can just hear him. You know, sometimes when you're watching a movie or a cartoon or something, you know, when the person's afraid, they gulp, you know, boom. <laughs> I can just see Saul, boom. <laughs> who art thou, Lord? He doesn't even know who this is. He doesn't even know him, but he calls him Lord. You notice that? Who art thou, Lord? And here comes the most shocking revelation to the life of Saul that he will ever get. And it is, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The pricks were the goads. That's what you might think about a hay fork or a pitchfork. You also might think about something that prods along cattle. Y'all have heard me tell the story of the few little run-ins and 
little fights that my brother and I had. You know, dad, the worst thing dad ever did was give us those hot sticks, you know, for cattle. Especially if there were two. Now, if there was one and whoever had it, he was the man. <laughs> you didn't mess with him. But when there was two, you know, we had, we'd have a little duel going. And, you know, sometimes, most of the time, I'd get the best of Chris. I was a little quicker than him. But, but you know, a hot stick is what we would have today where you pride those cattle along. In these days, it was, it was like a, a pitchfork or something with a very sharp prod on it. We also had sticks that we would work the cows with. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to Paul, as one of his sheep, as one of his lambs chosen before the foundation of the world, he's saying it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to go against the way that I am leading you to go. And he is there to lead him in a mighty way. And here on the road to Damascus, you have one of maybe only two, one of maybe, only, maybe three, but one of maybe two or three snapshots or videos, if you will, of a person being born again. You ever thought about that? Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life and you'll find a way to heaven. But if you search the Scripture, you'll find that they are they which testify of Jesus Christ. And there's no way to heaven but by the work of Jesus Christ. You see? Where do we find the Apostle Paul saying, okay, Lord, now come into my heart. Okay, Lord, I'll do this. I'll do that. Where do we find that? We don't find that. This is an example of the sovereignty of God. The Apostle Paul had an appointment with predestination. He had an appointment with the choosing of God. And God comes to this man who had no worthiness about him. He's a Christ hater. And he borns him again on the road to Damascus. And he turns him into something that he was not. Isn't that glorious? It's hard for thee to kick against you. You can't resist the Holy Spirit is what he's saying right there. You can't resist the power of God. And he trembling. Oh, he's trembling now. You see that? He's trembling. Trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? I'm sure he was probably thinking, Lord, are you fixing to smash me to smithereens? Oh, what a testimony to the grace and the mercy of God that the Lord would take this Christ hater, that He would take this Christian murderer and turn him into the most prolific writer in the New Testament age. That's amazing, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like the Apostle Paul, that saved a wretch like me. You see, that's the power of God. That's the sovereignty of God. God's not waiting. God's not wishing. God's not wanting. God is a sovereign God that does what He will, when He pleases, how He pleases, to who He pleases. And with this man right here, he had an appointment with Jehovah. Jesus Christ. Notice it says, we've got to move along to get to the second example. Because I don't want to leave the females out of this. But the Lord appears to Ananias, who is a a brother in the church, possibly a preacher. And he tells Ananias, he says, Arise and go and baptize Paul, Saul. He's still called Saul. He gets called Paul later. But go and baptize Saul. And Ananias says, well, Wait a minute. And I probably would have said the same thing. Well, wait a minute. Are you talking about the guy that has death warrants to arrest the Christians? And the Lord says in verse 15, Go thy way. Now watch the language. For he, Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me. You want to know if Saul was chosen before the foundation of the world? His name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And there was nothing about Saul that was attracted to God. There was nothing about Saul that was worthy of the Lord's blessing. And the matter of fact, the Lord looked down through time and saw all of the havoc that Paul would wreak upon the church. And yet he chose him anyway. Now, if you see yourself as a sinner and you see what you have done to offend God and you see how you've come short of the glory of God, then praise God, that means you are just like Saul in the sense of you're unworthy of the salvation of God. I'm unworthy of the salvation of God. And the, the ultimate linchpin, if you will, in all of that is who gets the glory in this situation? 
Did Saul get the glory by consenting to the death of Stephen? Did Saul get the glory by letting them lay down their coats there and he was the witness? Did Saul get the glory by making havoc of the church? As a matter of fact, Saul regretted this for the rest of his life. He called himself in 1 Timothy a blasphemer. He said, I was one that persecuted the church of God. He called himself a blasphemer against God. He regretted it for the rest of his life. But he did it before he'd been touched by the grace and mercy of God. Isn't that amazing? The Lord says to Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. Watch this now. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. My goodness, what a commission. (laughs) For I will show him, Saul, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm telling you, child of God, when the grace of God comes to you and you see what God has done for you, I believe that's why religion today has has waxed and waned as it has. I believe that's why we see so many falling away from the church of God because we've lost sight of what God has called us to as a people. Notice the the Lord said, I'm calling Saul to prosperity and all riches and prosperity. No, he had the riches. He was the smartest of the smart. He was probably the richest of the rich. He had dual citizenship. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish citizen. He had it all. And the Lord said, said, I will show him, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. See, we don't have a clue about suffering. What kind of invitation is that? Come and serve the Lord and you'll suffer for serving the Lord. But by the grace of God, you'll bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings. And he did that. And you won't find any apostle suffering any greater than the apostle Paul suffered. What in the world could impact an individual so much to give that kind of devotion to God? I'm telling you, it's the electing, predestinating, sovereign power of God that is the motivation for the child of God to think that He chose Paul, to think that He chose me. Why would He do that? The only thing that we can do is plumb the depths of the grace and mercy of God and say, all glory to God. That's it. The second one. Luke, the 8th chapter. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to slight... The sisters. I know I'm going to have a little less time to give to this dear one. I want to talk to you about Mary Magdalene. Mary of Magdala. And it came to pass afterward, this is Luke 8 and 1, that when he went through every village and city, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Now I'm going to tell you what the three primary theories are about Mary and her past, because not a whole lot is given. I'm going to tell you what I believe. And you can look at it and study it for yourself and and see what you believe. Some believe that Mary may have been the prostitute that came to Jesus in the previous chapter when he sat in the house of Simon the Pharisee. It does not say that. It does not say that's her name. So some say, well, she was a prostitute and had, you know, some association related to prostitution and she was this terrible person. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that's the case. Some people say, because of some traditions of the Jews, that she might have been some kind of addict. You know, and and that's all all of these are possible. The Jews would associate vices like drinking, adultery, fornication. They would associate vices with with demons. They would say, well, that person's got the demon of of fornication or the demon of alcohol. And I get that. You know, they don't advertise alcohol at the liquor store as spirits for nothing, right? Alcohol has a spirit to it, and it will give you a different spirit if you're not careful. So because the Jews believed that a vice or a sin was connected to a demon, you know, they would say, well, that person's got demon alcohol in them. 
I say that even today. It does not necessarily mean that the person had a demon, but it's, it's a demonic, it's a devilish thing to get involved with. Okay, you might think about Luke 11 and 24 where it says that there was the man that got rid of the one demon, the one vice maybe, and he went out to dry places and didn't reform himself like he should have and he went back to the same place he was and he took seven more vices or demons unto himself and the last state of him was worse than the first. You might think about that. That's possible. But this is what I think. And this comes not just because I read some commentator, because I studied it myself about the occurrence of the Greek word for one possessed of a devil. And it's the Greek word demoniac. And if you'll look at every occurrence of one possessed of the devil, a demoniac in the days of Christ, you'll find that it doesn't have anything to do. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with prostitution. and It doesn't seem to have anything to do with vices. I'll give you an example. The wild Gadarean who was possessed of the legion. You remember? Nobody could be around that guy. He was what we would call today insane. Now listen to me very carefully. I am not saying that every person who is insane or mentally incompetent is possessed of a demon. I'm not saying that. But remember that this day and time when Satan knew something was going on in the area of Jerusalem, that there's no question that Satan had had marshaled his demonic forces and they were all concentrated in this area where the Son of God was moving about. So there were extra problems going on as a result of that. It does not mean that every person that was clinically or medically insane was possessed of a demon. It doesn't mean that. But in a few circumstances here we read where some people were insane or what they would call in those days a maniac or a lunatic, there's no question that there were some people who were possessed of devils, like the wild Gadarean. You study that out yourself. I believe that Mary was insane. Have you ever been around somebody who was insane? Being involved in the court system, you know, I've had to be involved in proceedings and such from time to time where somebody was a danger to others and a danger to themselves. That's you know, a basic kind of understanding of what it means to be, you know, clinically incompetent or insane. Several times, especially for older folks, I'm not saying these older folks had demons now, okay? <laughs> Don't, you, you need to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying every person that is incompetent or insane has a demon. I'm not saying that. But in this circumstance, there's no question that demonic presence was causing some mental breakdown. But I've been involved in a few situations where we would have to restrain someone or commit someone because they were a danger to others and a danger to themselves because of their mental condition. You know, there are people, close friends of mine, that have mental genetic conditions and they take medication, which, praise God, you know, that's, that's not a demonic possession, okay? <laughs> that's somebody that's got a genetic situation going on from their forefather, goes all the way back. Can, can we agree that Adam had a genetic problem when he committed sin in the Garden of Eden. Everything we deal with today is a result of what Adam did in the Garden when sin came upon mankind. So I believe Mary, I believe she was insane. Remember the wild Gadarean? Nobody could be around him. See, I don't believe Mary was engaged in prostitution. I don't believe that she was a drug addict. I think she was psychotic and she was insane. She was totally useless to herself and to others. And not just that, I believe she was a danger to herself and others. You think they might have called her Crazy Mary? You know, there's Crazy Mary. You know, they, they said, there's the wild Gadarean. There's Crazy Mary of Magdala. Several years ago on my first trip, or maybe it was the second trip to Ghana to preach the gospel, we were riding down the road in the little town of 
Ho, Ghana, when we got there, seeing the sights, smelling the smells, most of which were not that good. And, you know, seeing the people, seeing the culture, and I'm just, you know, amazed or whatever. And we're going along, and there's this man walking down the road. As we say in the South, he was buck naked. I mean, people all around. He's just walking down the road. Just, just. And I said, what is the deal with that guy? You know, he'd be arrested in America for indecent exposure. He's just, and the, and the driver said, he's insane. He's insane. They, they don't have an insane asylum over there to put somebody like that in to try to help him. You know, nobody wants to have anything. I, I, I didn't go up and talk to that guy. You know, he said he's insane. You think about the person that you may know in your life that maybe went to that depth of mental issues where they had to be, they had to be institutionalized. And maybe in this lifetime, maybe they never recovered. I've got good news for you. As a chosen child of God, whether they're hospitalized or institutionalized for the rest of their life, I can tell you they'll be with God in heaven because they're chosen. You see? But that, I believe, is what was wrong with Mary. She was a danger to herself and she was a danger to others. But she had an appointment with predestination. She had an appointment with the chooser. And at some point, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this maniac who was a danger to herself and a danger to others, similar to the wild Gadarene. And he spoke her name. He called Saul by name. He said, Saul, Saul. You may be sitting there saying, well, you know, the Lord's never called me by name audibly, but He's called you by name. In your heart of hearts as a born-again child of God, when you began to love the Lord, you said, maybe you can't remember when that was. I can't remember when I was born again. I've always loved the Lord and always felt sorry when I, sometimes sorry when I got caught, but sorry for doing bad things. I don't remember when I was born again. I didn't have the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus experience of being born again. I wasn't killing Christians. I didn't have a, a Mary Magdalene experience where she was a danger to herself and a danger to others. But I had my own experience, and I believe as a small child, I don't remember when, but as a toddler, or maybe like John the Baptist in the womb of his mother, or Jeremiah in the womb of his mother, God spoke my name, and He said, live spiritually. You see that? Jesus comes to Mary, and He casts out those demons from her. Can you picture the revelation on Mary's face? As she came out of that, I wonder if she remembered anything. I'm sure she could by the power of God. But when she came out of that mental fog that she'd been in, that mental distress that she'd been in, that neurotic state that she'd been in, that psychotic state, and she began to see again and she began to hear again with sane ears, the Lord had spoken to her. The Lord had a use for her. But let me ask you this question. What characteristic of Mary, what part of Mary was attractive to God in that insane state for God to call her and to choose her? You can answer that. The same thing as Saul. There's nothing... That's why it's the grace and the mercy of God. By the way, when you get introduced to Mary in Luke the 8th chapter, you can do a little character study of Mary and what motivated her. You know, Mary didn't just get a truckload of grace dropped on her, a truckload of mercy dropped on her, and then went about her way. Oh, that was great. I'll just go do what I want to do. I've never met anybody that understood grace and mercy who ever wanted to go out and do what they wanted to do. When you're touched by the grace of God, and you see yourself like a Saul, or like a Mary, or somewhere in between, because we're all in between that, somewhere, dead in sins, when you see that, you never want to sin again. Sometimes people say, well, y'all are those people that believe in you know, election, predestination. And so no matter what you do, 
No matter what you say, no matter how you act, you're still going to heaven. Well, you know, from a clinical standpoint, you know, that is correct. A child of God cannot fall out of the hand of God. Jesus said, no man can pluck them out of my hand. But I've never met a child of God who understood the grace of God, who understood the mercy of God, that wanted to live any way they wanted to. As a matter of fact, if I could turn a switch in me today, if I could switch something on my person, in my spiritual nature, and never sin again, I'd switch that switch a long time ago. But because of my nature, it overcomes me. It overwhelms me. I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. I think things I shouldn't think. But if it was up to me, because of what I see God has done for me and how I have disgraced Him in my life, I would never sin again if it were possible. So when you see the grace and mercy of God, you don't say things like that. You don't say, well, I'll just go live any way I want to because God's chosen me. or because God's No, there's not a child of God who sees grace that will say that. Mary didn't say that. So we find Mary popping up again and again and again. One of the next places that she pops up is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Mary was one of the last ones at the cross? Did you know that Mary saw where they laid His body? While all the men, while all the disciples, the apostles, except for John, had fled and ran like little fraidy cats, they'd run away because they feared for their life. Not Mary. Because Mary had seen what God had done for her. Mary had seen that God had cast those demons out of her. Where she once was insane, now she was sane again. And she could not live without being close to Jesus. And so she followed Him to the cross. And she watched there as her Savior was crucified. And she watched as they took His body down as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took down the body of Jesus and wrapped it up and took it to the grave. She watched as they took it to Joseph's grave, the rich man's grave, the rich man's tomb. And she watched them put Him in there. And so the next day, in the early in the morning, she brought the spices there. She and another one were the first ones to come to the graveside to give to Jesus the spices on His body so His body would not stink as it lay there in the grave. But I'm telling you, child of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't need those perfumes. He didn't need those spices because three days and three nights after He was crucified and died and went into the tomb, He was resurrected. He was outside the grave when Mary came there. But she was the, one of the first ones there. And she was one of the first ones to see Jesus. And she is the first one that Christ spoke to while all the other apostles were trembling and afraid. Mary was down at the grave to her own detriment, to her own fear, and to her own threatening her own life because of everything that had transpired. Not Mary. She was down there. She was courageous. And she was battling for the Lord. Have you ever been past hope? Have you ever found yourself in a place where there's just no hope? There's just no way forward. Here is Mary who was in the presence of Jesus and she was loving the Lord and thanking Him every Every day and providing for his needs as he went through uh, the, the ministry of Christ. And here she is down at the grave just wanting to see his body. He's gone, she thinks. He's never coming back. I won't see him again until I get to heaven. But she's down there to her own detriment. And you know what she sees? She cries there. She weeps beside the grave. You can read about it in John, the 20th chapter. And you'll see as she weeps by the grave, she looks inside and she sees two angels in there. This formerly insane woman who has been touched by the grace of God is a chosen vessel of God. Here she is and she sees the angels and they say, what are you seeking? And she says, I just want to know where the Lord is, where they put his body. And she turns around and there is Christ standing there. Christ is beholding her. She doesn't recognize who He is. And He says, why do you weep, woman? And she looks at Him and she says, in weeping, she says, I just want to know where they've taken His body. Can you picture this little, probably weak-framed, small woman? I don't know how much Jesus weighed, but she weighed, He weighed more than Mary. He says, where have they taken my Savior's body? She said, I'll just go get him. 
I'll just get him. Oh my goodness, child of God, can you see what the grace and the mercy and the choosing and the sovereignty of God did to Mary? I could just picture her if, she had, if there had been a body that she'd be trying to drag that body back over where it belonged. It'd probably take her half a day if she could even do it at all. But she was willing because she wanted to see Jesus again. She was willing to go back to the place where she had last seen Him placed, which was in the grave. Oh, child of God, when we get into bad spots, when we get into trouble in our lives, when we face tribulation and trials, it would behoove us to go back to the places where we first saw or last saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was where you heard the preaching of the gospel. Maybe it's where the Lord told you about your sins being paid for. But when we find ourselves in those dark places, we should go back to where we had last contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Mary did. She said, just tell me where they laid him. I'll go get him. And Jesus spoke these blessed words. He said, Mary. And she said, Master. What part of Mary, the lunatic, the maniac, the insane person, what part of Mary merited God choosing her. Nothing. Nothing. What part of Saul merited God choosing him? Nothing. What part of you or me in our depraved state, in our nature that comes down from Adam, what part of you or me merits God's favor? Absolutely nothing. And that's why we believe that God did the choosing. God set the destination. And from a practical standpoint, God has called you by name. Insert your name in the blank. If you love the Lord, it's because in the deadness of your sin, like Saul, the murderer of Christians, or like Mary, the insane, possessed of demons, He called your name one day. Saul spent the rest of his life serving and ministering, bearing the name of Jesus. Mary spent the rest of her life serving and ministering and bearing the name of Jesus. No matter what cost came, Oh, that we today would have that kind of devotion. Why? Because He's chosen you. You didn't deserve it. You'll never deserve it. But in the mystery of the grace and mercy of God, you can praise Him for it. You can make that confession. I believe that God has chosen me and I'm not worthy of it. And you can follow the Lord in New Testament baptism. We give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.